This message comes to you from City Bible Church in Portland, Oregon, where we are committed to living like Jesus and sharing His love. It is our prayer that this message blesses and enriches your life. Well, good evening to all of you. Some of you probably have never met me or whatever, and so this is our opportunity. Hi. Been here for quite a while. Uh, my family, I've been teaching at the college now for 38 years. Uh, my wife came here in 1975. Uh, this has been our spiritual home. Uh, we've raised our family here. Our kids were born in the pew, and they're still there. Uh, there's hardly a time you can come into the church and one of our kids aren't here, especially Jason. He does live here. But our, our three kids, Jason does all the video work that you see here. He does video announcements, all of our creative stuff. He does all the PowerPoints that we're going to see this evening. Our son Chris is a children's pastor over on Mill Plain. He also teaches up at PBC part-time. And then our daughter is up in the frozen north up in Canada, and she's married to a youth pastor up there. And they've got a 120 kids in their youth group up there, and it's just doing a great thing. Church has become our family business, and the kids have followed in the family business, and in doing that, it's been so much fun. And watching them go through PBC and then realizing what they've learned there has paved the way for all of them to be involved in church life. So to have me come and talk about biblical study and promote what we do up at PBC is really our life message, it's what we do. And tonight we want to take the final stage in our series here and talk about the book we study. And we want to introduce it and get into it because last week they talked about the book we live, but the only way we can live it is to know what's in it. Which means that somewhere along the line we have to get back and read the book and look at the things that it has to say about the different areas of our life and begin to go through the practice of implementing it. We'd like to start by looking at a great passage back in the book of Ezra, chapter 7. And looking at Ezra 7, we're going to be introduced now to one of the great heroes of the Old Testament. He's been considered by many scholars and by the Jewish community to be one of the four most significant individuals in the Jewish community in the Old Testament time. He's that way because he's responsible for helping to organize and edit the Old Testament into its three component parts we call the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. He's also responsible for the first translation from Hebrew into Aramaic. He wrote three books of the Old Testament, and he's very influential in starting the whole synagogue system, which is the heart of all the Jewish communities. That's the man Ezra. And the Bible calls him in there a skillful scribe. That's just a nice way of saying he knew what he was doing. He was quick about it. He was very quick with people asking him questions and being able to review and pull out of the scripture the things that were significant. And in Ezra chapter seven and verse 10, we see this scripture. We are going to see the three important ingredients that helped make Ezra who he was. And notice if you read the passage, it says this, for Ezra had set his heart, that's very important, his will, his volition, his motivation was behind it. This was not a passive endeavor. It's who he was. It burnt inside of him. It said he gave his heart now to study the law. And we look at that, and how many people would spend their whole life studying the law, and yet this guy was vitalized in doing that. He studied it, but that's not enough. He studied it so that he could practice it. He studied the Word of God so that he himself personally could begin to put into practice the things that he learned. And then, only then, and after that, he taught other people. 
And Ezra shows us two very important lessons in life. And the first one is this. The reason that we study is so that our study changes who we are. Study is not an academic thing. Study is a life transformational thing. We go to the word of God because it's a living, active word that's sharper than a two-edged sword. It's able to divide between our intentions and our thoughts. This book has a power in it, and if we don't realize that, we miss the first great story in the Bible when God said, let there be, and there was enough power in those words to bring everything into existence. This word has the same kind of power, and it wants to change us. It wants to conform us. To study this book with no intent of allowing it to change is going to open the door to deception. Because how can you learn truth and then turn your back and say, that's nice? No. You study truth because truth is what sets you free. Truth is what gives you a clear look at what we're supposed to be. And as we approach this evening, I want you to realize this. These three things were the foundation to this great man's study. And can I say this? They need to be the foundation to each one of us. We study the word of God with the intent of letting it change our lives and so that then we can tell other people the good news of what's happened to us. These are the foundations for why we do what we do. Now, when we look at the Bible, we find that the Bible now has different ways that it benefits us. Sometimes when people try to make this dichotomy in life that there is a secular side of my life and a spiritual side of my life. This is a a weird thing that we inherited from our Greco-Roman heritage. It's a dualistic worldview that they got there. But back in the Old Testament, there was no dualism. There was no sacred and secular. It was all one life and you serve God with everything that's in you. That's the way that we were meant to live. And we look at this great passage, we go down here. It says in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is inspired. We looked at this the second week, how we got the Bible through the process of the spirit moving on people. But then notice this, and it's profitable to teach us. There's information that it will transfer to us, but it doesn't stop there. It's also profitable for reproof. There are times when the Bible is just gonna say, thou shalt not. Don't do it. This lifestyle's gonna hurt you. And I'm asking you to do some things that will save you from it, but that's not enough. It then goes on to correction. It doesn't just tell us what not to do, it shifts our attention to a new life pattern so that now we start doing something different. In the words of the great apostle Paul, now in Ephesians 4, it says this, we put this off and we put this on. It's not enough to quit sinning. We have to replace our sin with godliness. We have to work those things into us. And these are the two stages And the last one, it's gonna train us. It's gonna train us how to do life. It's gonna instruct us in the things about business. It's gonna instruct us how to take care of our family, raise our kids. It's gonna talk to us about developing character qualities. And if you're adventuresome, you can go to the book of Song of Solomon and it'll tell you how to really love your wife, okay? And you can look at some of these things and you go through and realize this Bible talks about life as a whole, not just religious things. So please, don't just pull this out when you're ready to go to church. Pull this out when you're ready to do life because that's what the basis of it is inside. Now, what are different ways that we can interact with the scripture? We wanna run through a few things because 
we have to learn how to work with this thing. We have to learn how to interact and relate to this, and there's many avenues that we can do this. As I tell the students, now one of the greatest tools that we bring to biblical study is our general understanding of the whole book. The more we know the stories, the more we know the series of events, the more that we're familiar with some of the main characters, the more I've got the big picture in my mind, when I start reading one or two verses, I bring all of that into those verses. It gives me a backlog of information so that I'm not just microscopically looking at one little verse, a dozen words, and trying to figure out, no, I figure out what this means based upon what everything else tries to say. And we come to it with this idea. And what are some of the ways now that we interact with it? These things that are on here right now is a list of things. We call them now spiritual disciplines. Uh, John Wesley called them methods, and that's thus the denomination that he started is called Methodists because they put the methods into practice. They're all different ways that you and I can interact with the book and begin to understand it, reading it. You know, it's one thing back in the Bible days when they didn't have copies of the Bible because they're all handwritten. They didn't start printing them till 1452 AD. That means before that, every copy of the Bible had to be handwritten. They're expensive, they're very rare, people didn't have them. So they relied upon public meetings like this where somebody had a scroll and they could read part of it and the people listened intently because that's the only way they're gonna get it. The next one is they pray it. When you read through the Bible, you're gonna find some great prayers in the Bible. The one that we know the most comes straight out of Matthew 6. It's the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus tries to teach his disciples how to pray. And in there as he goes through and he starts saying things that are mentioned elsewhere in the scripture. If you want God to hear you, then pray your prayers according to what he says here. Ask your requests based upon how he says, this is how we do this in our life. And the more our prayers reflect his will, the more he listens. Because our prayers are then motivated by the very clear things that he has stated in there. We look at singing. We sing our scriptures. Uh, Back in the old days, because they didn't have Bibles, they would put their theology in their songs. That's the only way that they could keep track of what they believed. And a couple of these great songs have been passed on to us. When we read through the scripture, we'll find that in Colossians chapter one, there's about four verses in there which scholars will say used to be one of the songs that was sung by the early church. The book of Philippians chapter two has got one of those. They are so laden with their their theology, what they believe that when Paul was writing Colossians, he says, you know what? I can't say this any better than the hymn. Let me just give you the lyrics to the hymn. And in it is embedded one of the greatest sections of Christology you're gonna find. Sing these things. Meditate on them, rethink them. Close the book, close your eyes, rethink them. What does it mean? How can it apply to different areas of my life? Journal, I know this takes time. But when you're done reading the Bible, stop, take out a piece of scratch paper, and write down the impressions that God is giving you. And the reason I say do that is this. The art of writing, the very act of writing, is where we clarify our thoughts enough that they can become logical and we can actually write them out. How many times have you thought about something but it's just scattered thoughts? But when you have to discipline yourself to write them out, put them succinctly down so that now they make sense, 
then it becomes real for you. Then it begins to be clarified for you. And this is one of the great things about journaling. You got memorizing. The purpose for memorization is very simple. That wherever you go during your day, you take the Bible with you. Now when you're working and you're on the floor at the factory or whatever, you can't carry this thing around. But you can carry it around here. And as the psalmist says in Psalms 119, he says, your word have I hid in my heart. I can go through the day and I'm never without your word. You know, we can have it on our phone, we can have it on our devices, but when the batteries wear out and we have no bars on the phone, it's what's in our heart that counts. That's what we live with, that's what we take. And then finally, teaching it. Give yourself to every opportunity you can to hear teaching. Listen to the way that different teachers communicate. Do you know there's a reason why there's four Gospels? And it's because no one man can get everything there is. Even with four guys, and they're all writing about Jesus Christ, and they're writing from four different perspectives to four different audiences, even with those four guys, John says this, not everything that he did or said is contained in the, the world couldn't even contain the volume thereof if we wrote everything down. But what we get is four different perspectives. And God will gift people in the church and he'll gift them differently. And when you listen to one, you'll get one perspective. I remember when Bob Wagger used to be here, every verse in the Bible for Bob, because he headed up our missions program, every verse in the Bible was about missions. Well, it's not, but for Bob it was, you know? And you go through, you know, for some, every verse in the Bible is about evangelism. For me, it's about teaching, it just is, I'm sorry. Because I look at life through the sphere, the grid of my gift, and different teachers do that, and we need to see that, we need to become aware of that. Now, studying the scripture. We wanna look at the actually getting into it, and with time and everything else today, and resources, we can't you know, pass out you know, libraries of commentaries and teach you how to study in a very complex or a deep way. But what we wanna do here is just teach you some basic elementary introductory teaching or study skills. Because with these skills, these are things that all of you who can read can do next time you read your Bible. They're very basic. And so just take a few notes as we go down through some of these because they're crucial. In Acts chapter 17, and verse 11, as Paul writes about the church at Berea, he says there were a noble church for this reason, that after they've heard the word of God and they received it with eagerness, they would go home and examine the scriptures to see if what they had heard was in fact what was written in the book. My recommendation to all of you is this, whenever you hear somebody preach, go home and check it out. And as you check it out, what it's gonna do for you is deepen your understanding and it's also gonna etch it deeper in your heart. This passage is so enlightening because when Paul came from Thessalonica, they had all kinds of problems, they didn't listen carefully and whatever, and that's why he had to write the two books, First and Second Thessalonians back, because they had so many misunderstandings and the reason is they didn't go home like the Bereans and think through the process. We need to listen carefully. We need to go back and say, God, help me. So what are some things that we can do? Well, number one is this. We can carefully read the scripture text. Carefully, that's the clue. Don't be in a hurry. Slow down. Read it to understand it. 
I know sometimes we read just to get through our morning devotions and so forth. I gotta get my three chapters to keep up. But you read enough that you can sit and meditate and it's better to get three verses than three chapters that you forget. Read carefully, look at the details. It's a scary thing when you've been in the ministry for 20 years, you sit down and you begin to read a passage you've read many times before and suddenly you say, I never saw that before. It's been there the whole time. Why did my eyes go over that? Why did my eyes not see that? Because maybe I'm not reading carefully. So in reading carefully, give me give you some suggestions. Number one, read a passage several times or read it in different translations. There's a reason for having different translations and some people balk and, and argue about all the different translations, but they have value to them. One author or one translation team may allow you to see something different than another. Some Bibles are written at a lower reading level. NIV's written a seventh grade reading level. ESV is at an 11th grade reading level. The NAS that I use is at a 12th grade reading level, which means that the vocabulary is more specific and more exacting in some translations. And it's important to gather this. It's important to get that kind of input rather than just take the easiest one to read, but the easiest may not be the one that gives it to you the best way. So mix it up, look at a couple of them. Allow these scholars now to impress you. Number two is mark your Bible to pieces. Get yourself a set of colored pencils or markers. If you look at my Bible, it looks like the Rainbow Coalition. It just does. Yeah, not really, but it does. I got colors everywhere because I mark key words, I mark phrases, I mark arrows to go over and say, he started a thought here, he's gonna pick it up over there on the next page. See, most of you are visual, which means this, what you see with your eye is gonna determine what you pick up right away. And sometimes just black words on white paper won't do it. But do what you can in your text to spot things. Spot concentrations of words. See transitions in there. Mark your Bible up, God won't care. <laughs> if you mess your Bible up, God's totally cool with that. What he doesn't want is a 20-year-old Bible that's still got gold leaf on the edge and it's never been opened up. That bothers him. He wants to look at a six-month-old Bible that's fallen apart because it's been used. That's in the heart of God. So go through it, mark it up, and the last one, when you get done reading a story, before you put the Bible down, just close it and ask yourself, close your eyes and say, what did I just read? Let your mind go through the story. Let your mind go through the doctrinal teaching. You don't have to memorize it at this point. It's just that you rework it and what it does is it helps solidify what you've just read so that you can recall it later on. Tell yourself the story once again. Without looking at the book, tell it because of what you have in your heart and what you have in your mind. The next one we have up here is learn general observations. Learn general observations. Learn to look for things as you go through the text. Now I give you a passage here, it's in James chapter one. And it says this, and it, it's the verse here that is marking the distinction between a person who just looks at the word of God, hears it and walks away, versus the individual that goes and looks intently to find all the details, and it likens it to a man who will go to a mirror, and he goes up to the mirror, and he looks at his face in there quickly and walks away, and James says this, he immediately forgets what kind of person he is because there's been very little effort into really examining what's there, the details and the features. But the man that's gonna be blessed, 
is the man that's gonna stoop over and he's gonna look at every detail. He's gonna look at the transitions. He's gonna ask himself, do I know what that word means? And the more clarity he can get by the closer look, he's gonna walk away with a blessing. We just have to come to a place where we make these observations. Now, what kind of observations do we look for? The first one is this, look for repeated words. When men and women, back in old, when they wrote letters to each other and so forth, if they wanted to make a point and they wanted their readers to catch their point, they didn't highlight it, they didn't italicize it, they repeated words. And a repeated word in a passage now gave them the insights as to what's there and what they could expect. And so we go down and we begin to look at these things and we look in passages and we've got one up here. It's out of Jude chapter one, verse 15. This is one verse from the Bible and notice how many times it uses the term ungodly. It uses it so awkwardly that by the time you get done with it, you're gonna say, that's terrible English. Well, it's not meant to be English. It was written in Greek, by the way. But the reason that it's awkward is because he keeps hammering this word over and over. Psalms 136. Have you read Psalms 136? 26 verses in that Psalm. Every one of them ends with these words, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Old King James says, his mercy endures forever. You can't finish any of the verses without his mercy endures forever. His mercy endures 26 times right between the eyes. And for some people they say, I wonder what that Psalm is about. Take your pulse. <laughs> See if there's any life going through the vein. Look at those things. As I mentioned today, in Matthew chapter five, verses three through 11, nine verses, each one begins with blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. After nine verses, guess what's resounding in your brain? Blessed. And that's exactly what Jesus wants him to know. You follow me, you become part of my kingdom. I wanna bless the people that in life you look at them, they're poor, they're discouraged, they mourn, but you know, that's the people I want to bless. We get the message and he emphasizes it over and over again. Another thing that we can look for as we come down is look for comparisons. Look for comparisons. And now we see these comparisons when we go down, we see that sometimes when the Bible is gonna talk about spiritual things, and spiritual things are not always tangible. We can't see them and feel them. And so what the Bible will do is it will give a tangible, physical object to compare with these so that the listeners can say, ah, oh, now I get it. Psalms 1, we put it up here. And Psalms 1 is such a great passage because it's gonna characterize two different people. It's gonna characterize the person who meditates in the law of God day and night, and he's gonna be characterized now and compared to a tree that's planted, it's got a good root system, it's irrigated it's by rivers of water, its leaf does not fade and it brings forth fruit in its season. That is the picture we get of a life that meditates on that. Now, the guy that listens to the scorn and the mocking and everything else, he's gonna be like chaff that's gonna be cut off and the wind is gonna come by and so forth and you're gonna see that his life is gonna drift away. No stability, no fruitfulness. And so here he's talking about two spiritual lives, but he uses plants, he compares those life to plants because that's what the people in the crowd understand. They're farmers, they're laborers, they're common people and so forth. They work out there in the field and guess what? They know trees, they know grass. 
Now you're making sense. This thing about the kingdom is a little ethereal for us. Trees and plants, we got it. And so the Bible will do this. Another thing that they will do as we get down is they're gonna look at uh, contrasts that are there. They're gonna look at contrasts. In James chapter three, I've given you a passage here. And this is where James is talking now to people and he's warning them about living two-souled lives, double-minded lives. He's introduced that in his book and he says, what makes people double-minded is the wisdom that they follow in their life. There is one wisdom now that does not come down from heaven. It's earthly, it's sensual, it's demonic. And you can tell the people that live this life by the fruit that comes out. Then there is a wisdom that comes down from above and it's pure and it's peaceable and gentle and so forth. He puts two kinds of wisdom side by side so that you can see the differences in them. This is the contrast. You're gonna find many of these examples as you go through in the Bible. Book of Proverbs does this a whole lot when you look at it in there and it's going to describe the wise man and the fool, the virtuous woman and the strange woman, the guy who is diligent in what he does and the lazy guy that's over here. They put them side by side and it really helps their characteristics to pop and shine for us. And so they know it's a very valid and very good way of communication. Lists, the Bible will put things in lists and you're gonna find lists everywhere. What to remember with the list is that they're all connected by common conjunctions because every element of the list shares something with each other. The passage I've given you up here is Galatians. It talks about the deeds of the flesh. And then you go through a couple of verses of all these lists of sins and bad behavior and guess what? They all have one thing in common. They're motivated by the desires of our humanity and our fleshly nature. That's the common element that they all share. Now this one ends at verse 21, but if you go to verse 22, that verse begins with a but showing contrast and it says now the fruit of the spirit is love, joy and peace and so forth. That's the characteristics of a life that allows the Holy Spirit to work through it. Another thing that we'll find is cause and effect. There are times, look for the word because when you go through the scripture. So and so needs to do this, why? Because it will produce this in their life. And you'll find here in John 15, cause and effect, he's gonna end saying the effect is the world hates you and the cause of that is because I've chosen you and you're not like them. You're different. Your life intimidates them and it makes them feel guilty. Jesus said, I warned them about their lives and that's the reason that they hate me. And so guess what? Cause, God has called you to be different, affect, the world may not like you. And these are the natural consequences of the decisions that we make. And the Bible is full of these cause and effects as we go through. The next one is conjunctions we put up here. And conjunctions are these important little words, oftentimes overlooked. And I wanna give you the, probably the one of the most famous passages in Romans, it comes from chapter 12. Old King James says, I beseech you, which means I beg you, brethren, uh, by the mercies of God that you present your body as a living sacrifice. And people focus on the living sacrifice. What's that mean? What's God looking for? But what makes this verse so special is the conjunction, because if you'll notice, the verse begins with therefore, which means what it's about to say is based upon what has just preceded. And if I go through the end of chapter 11, it's gonna talk about the mercy of God, the gracious mercy of God. It would be one thing if I stood up here and say, you gotta give everything to God. I say, well, that's a little harsh. 
But if I already understand all that he's given to me in his mercy, based upon the understanding of God's mercy, this then is totally logical. It's totally reasonable. And I need to follow the vocabulary because it's gonna say, I can't understand what he's saying until I understand what leads up to this. These conjunctions, and you'll find them everywhere as you go through the scriptures. Now, one last area here is we need to get an overview of sections of the Bible. We need to get an overview of sections. I don't recommend too many books here. I don't want you to go out and spend a fortune. But what I will say this, when we look at an individual verse in the Bible, we need to be able to put that verse in perspective compared to everything else that you're gonna find. There is now, and they've got a, a picture up here for you of a leaf. And a leaf here is gonna represent one verse in the Bible. And we can so focus on that leaf, all of its intricacies and its structure and everything else, that we fail to realize that, and it's the next slide. That leaf is part of a tree. And it's the tree that actually supports the leaf. It's the structure, it's the trunk, it's the branches. And my little leaf I'm looking at is just one part of what makes this whole beautiful tree. If I wanna know what this little verse means, I need to begin to look at it in light of the whole tree the whole picture, the big picture. Now, how do I get that? I'll recommend one book to you. Ken Malman, one of my colleagues up there, wrote a couple books several years back, and this one's called New Testament Survey. He also wrote one Old Testament Survey, and what he does is very simple. He gives you one page for each of the books of the Bible, one page for Genesis, one page for Exodus. It's quick, it's easy to look through. He divides each now book into 10 different things you can look for. And some of the things in here, what he's doing on this one page is giving you the big picture so that as you read this, who wrote it? When did they write it? What were the circumstances? What was the purpose and so forth? It helps you understand the one verse or the two verses that you go to later. Let me give you an example of some of the things that he brings up in here, his book. These are some of the 10. He will give you the purpose of the book. The purpose of the book. These books were not just written because the authors had nothing else to do. They were written because they had a specific goal, a specific people that they wanted to talk to. And sometimes we don't know that right away. We need to look at the purpose. What is then the message of the book? I may look at a book that has 14 chapters in it, and I may see all these different little subjects that it talks about, but yet if I stand back away from it, there are certain themes that flow through the whole book. They come up time and time again. They're like a woven piece of fabric and they're the threads that come up surface and they make the pattern of the book. That's called context. And we need to see the big picture. We also see here uh, the words, the key words that are in there. And Ken gives you a list of now some of the key words that you're gonna find as you go through here. This word is used 26 times. This word is used 35 times. Oftentimes the words that are used the most represent those threads that are woven through the key issues that are there. I'll give you one example, Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, the word believed is used 93 times, 21 chapters. If you do the math, that means that about 4.3 times in every chapter he's gonna talk about believing. That's a significant theme. And when I get to chapter 20, at the end of the book, in verse 30, John's gonna say this, everything that I have put in this book is for one reason, that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and believing you might have life. He says, you wanna know why I wrote the whole book? 
Look at the word that comes up over and over again. I want you to believe. First John 1 12, to as many as believe to them he gave the power, the authority to become children of God. Look for some of these key words and then an outline and what he does in there very simply is he gives you a short outline. You ever picked up a 300 page book and you're about to maybe consider reading it? What do most people do? They go to the table of the contents and in one and a half pages it tells you everything that you're gonna run into in the book. By looking at the outline, it exposes you to the big picture right away where certain things come, the sequence of the chapters and so forth. And Ken does this. He gives you the whole book there so that you can begin to see it. I'd like you to go to one last scripture with me, and this is how we'll close tonight. I want you to go back to the book of 2 Timothy chapter 2. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, and I'll just throw a couple little things out to you as we end tonight. This is Paul's last book. He wrote 13 in books in the New Testament. He wrote half of our New Testament. And as Paul is writing this, he's gonna let his young son in the faith, Timothy, realize this. I'm about to die. I've finished my race, I've run my course. I'm about to be poured out and so forth. Paul, his date of execution is up. Nero is gonna kill him. He knows he has just a short time left. And so before he dies, he wants to pass on a final message. As I tell the students, if you're on your deathbed and you know that you've got a short time to live, what's the most important things you wanna make sure that you tell the people you love? And that's exactly what he's doing. And he comes up at this point and listen to these words in chapter two. He says, my son be strong in the grace of God. The things which you have heard now from me in the presence of many witnesses, I want you to entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others. He says, Timothy, the most important word I'm gonna give you is this. Take all those things that I've taught you and pass them on to faithful people who will handle them well, who will treat them fairly, and will be able to teach others. He says, that's what I wanna leave. I'm gonna go away, I'm going to heaven. But the gospel goes on. And the gospel goes on with faithful people who take the time to learn it and pass it on and teach it. This is our future. And as you go up into chapter two then, he's gonna give you three pictures here, starting in verse three. That when we study the word of God to be faithful, we gotta be like soldiers who make sure that we do what we do to gain the approval of our enlisting officer. Number two, we're gonna be like athletes who are gonna compete, but we have to follow the rules. And number three, we're gonna be like farmers who go out and work hard, and they, because of their work, are gonna eat of the first fruits of the crop, and then they're gonna be able to share it with other people. He says, Timothy, when it comes to learning the word of God, there's three things I want you to know, and the last scripture I'll give you here demonstrates all three of them. He says, I want you to be diligent. To do what? Show yourself approved. That's the soldier. He has done what he did to make his commanding officer pleased with his performance. He's then gonna go on and it says he's gonna be a workman. This is the farmer, this is the laborer who's gonna go out and plow and work when it's not comfortable. And sometimes study is work. But in the end, like a farmer, you reap the crop that is there. And then when we do it, we have to rightly divide the word of truth. 
We rightly divide the word of truth because there's so many conflicting ideas out there. We have to learn to cut a straight line through it. We have to learn to deal with all the opposing ideas. And this final little term here, and this is like the athlete, he has to run according to the rules and we have to interpret according to the rules. We have to live within our boundaries. Our church has gone through a lot over its 60 years, some odd years history. We've had to deal with issues in our transitioning culture as it's constantly changing its moral values. We've had to deal with taxes. How far will the church go? How far do we encourage people? We had to struggle through the uneven territory of women in ministry with all the conflicting views. We've had to struggle as leadership with the issue of drinking and wine. And that is so many opinions. You have to cut a line through that. And now we're dealing with same-sex marriage. It's not easy. But what we know is this, we do what we do to get the approval of our Father, follow the rules, and are willing to put the effort into it. So at the end, as we get down, we rightly divide the word of truth and we never have to be ashamed. We're workers who produced a good finished product. Folks, this whole month has been around one thing. God has given us a great gift, but he won't study it for us. We have to do that. His Spirit will help us, but He says, take my word, read it, study it, meditate, do these things, because when you do, you'll be workers who will build a strong church, strong homes, strong individual lives, and we can look back at it and say, our God has truly blessed us. City Bible, enjoy studying the Word of God. Let God speak to you through the pages of that book. That's the gift he has given to us. God bless you.